0: Before we begin our study this morning, we need to um, let me go ahead and open in prayer since we've already had communion. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in the light of your word that we are able to understand truth and to properly interpret our own experience and circumstances. Now, Father, as we continue our study in 1 John, we pray that you would help us to understand how these things relate to our own spiritual life and our own spiritual advance, that the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 19. This is, I think, the third lesson or fourth lesson in this final section of John's introduction. With all the interruptions of the last uh, couple of months, I'm not sure how many lessons we've covered. I think we started this before Christmas, and with the uh, three weeks I was gone to Kiev, and then the uh, three or, I don't know, maybe it was four Sundays when I was in, in Houston, uh, we've sort of lost some continuity here, but hopefully it will all come back to us. And this morning I want to take some time to try to pull it together so we can understand the thought flow of John in this introduction. John is specifically dealing in this section, starting in verse 18 down through 27, with the difficulties, certain difficulties that immature baby believers face. He is dealing with uh, the basic problem-solving device, or stress buster as I've called it, for facing these problems. And one of these is confusion over false teachers. Today we often experience this in terms of confusion over conflicting theologies by different pastors or teachers or theologians. If you go out into the marketplace of ideas in Christianity today, you will discover just about anything, uh, whatever you want. And too often that's what people do when they're looking for a church, is they want to find somebody who's going to say everything that agrees with them so that their own personal opinions become the ultimate standard, rather than how accurately they teach the Word of God. See, that's the standard. Paul said that our responsibility, that is, as a pastor, is to be faithful, not to be popular, not to uh, teach what people want to hear, not to be entertaining, not even to, to be an excellent public speaker or orator. Our job is to be faithful to the text and to accurately teach what God has revealed. Well, this is just as much a problem uh, today as it was in the early church. And uh, people, young believers especially, or immature believers who don't know a whole lot of doctrine or do not know the Scriptures very well, are just as easily deceived and distracted by false teaching today as any other time in church history. I think somehow it may be even exacerbated today because you can turn on the television and you can watch all kinds of uh, heretics on TV. There are very few people on television, I find, that are uh, accurate. There are a few that teach sound doctrine, but there are just a few, and too often the networks, especially some of these Christian networks like Trinity Broadcasting Network and some of the others that are on, um, are owned and operated by people who have a minuscule understanding of the Scriptures, and as... as, uh, Hal Lindsay once said to Jan Crouch in my presence, There never was a heresy you didn't fall in love with. I always thought that was a great line. But that's true. It just seems like every time some heresy comes along, that's the first thing you find it is on Christian broadcasting. And very rare do you find somebody who just accurately teaches the word. I remember when I was a a young pastor some 20 years ago. discovering certain doctrines that were being taught at that time that were being popularized by three or four extremely popular television evangelists and pastors. And I spent some time in a nice academic way explaining these heresies and and how they conflicted with Scripture and going through them point by point, only to discover some weeks later that about half the congregation was still listening to these um, heretics on television the radio and it wasn't until i started naming names that a few light bulbs started going off and people started realizing what they were listening to so if you don't have a if you're a young believer and you haven't spent much time learning the word or in the word you're easily deceived and you don't understand a lot of the nuances of, of theology and so it's easy to hear some guy who's got a nice smile and Seems to have a large crowd and a lot of popularity and to think that somehow this guy must be teaching the Word only to discover later on that he doesn't have a clue what the, what the Scriptures say. And this is sort of the problem that John's dealing with even in the first century is that these false teachers have come up in the congregation or have come to the congregation and they are teaching... Uh, that Jesus is not really the Messiah and they're teaching what was called uh, an early form of Gnosticism or what we sometimes call Docetism. Now, the problem is that new believers and young believers are often and easily led astray by the truth. That's why you need to be here as often as you can whenever Bible class is being taught. We don't uh, grow as Christians and we don't learn the word by simply showing up 30 minutes or 45 minutes once a week. That's why we have uh, two classes on Sunday morning and one on Wednesday night. And why I teach different subjects each time is to cover the entire realm of doctrine. And uh, what some of you may notice who are relatively uh, new to the congregation, you look around and you see uh, some of the uh, more mature, and I don't mean by chronological age, but some of the more mature members of the congregation that they're here for both sessions on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night. That's one of the things that uh, impressed me about this congregation when I uh, first came here a little over four years ago. My how time flies when you're having fun. Is that uh, that the, the, of the total number of people in this congregation? There's always seems to be 70 or 80 percent here for any given class, sometimes more, and that just shows the level of positive volition that exists here. Well, John is dealing with different issues in spiritual growth as we go through this sections of, of the introduction and it's a long introduction, it goes from 1-1 one, one down to 227, but in this section of the introduction which began back in 1 chapter th- cha- I mean chapter 2 verse 3, he is emphasizing certain themes, certain character qualities related to different stages of spiritual growth. For example, in 1 John 2.13, he says, I am writing to you fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children, because you know the Father. Now, in that verse, he is not talking about literal fathers, young men, and children, in terms of chronological age or physical age, he is addressing them in terms of their spiritual age. Fathers addresses mature believers. Young men addresses the spiritual adolescents in the congregation. And the children addresses the spiritual infants, the new believers and the young believers. And we know that because the word he uses for children here in the Greek is the Greek word paideia, which is different from the word he has used in passages such as um, uh, 1 John 2.1 where he calls them my little children. There he uses a different word, uh, technion, and technion addresses them as, um, as his congregation. It's a term of endearment for the congregation But he shifts at this point to Pideon, which emphasizes a spiritual infant. Now, that becomes the outline for this concluding part of the the, uh, introduction, which began in 2.12 and goes to 2.27. First, he addresses the, the fathers. Notice he addresses the spiritually mature as those who had... Come to know him. And we saw that was a perfect tense of the Greek word gnosko, because you have come to know him who has been from the beginning. They have advanced spiritually to the point of personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. Now, that's what I call the love triplex. I'll put the chart up on the overhead in a minute. But the reason I can say that is by looking at what he has said already in chapter 2. In 1 John two three. look back at that. He says, By this we know, same word again, same tense, or, I mean, excuse me, by this we know that we have come to know him. There's the perfect tense again of Gnosko, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, knowing God is not something that happens just at salvation. We studied that. We saw how Jesus was addressing Philip. Philip had been with Jesus for three years. By this we know that we have come to know him. Philip had known Jesus. He recognized him. He was saved. He, he knew who Jesus was. He had been with him for three years. But Jesus says, Philip, you haven't come to know me yet. In other words, you haven't developed a mature relationship with me to, at this point. So coming to know him is not simple salvation. It's not just basic understanding of what the Bible teaches about God and about Jesus, but it is having an advanced or mature relationship with him. And this is signified by keeping his commandments. 1 John 2.4, John says, The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been matured. So see, the keeping of commandments and love for God, that's an objective genitive there, in him the love for God has truly been brought to completion. There we see that this emphasizes the fact that keeping his commandments is related to personal love for God the Father. But then down in verse 10, John comes back to say that the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And in that verse, we see a connection. Keeping his commandments relates to that key commandment that Jesus gave in John thirteen thirty four to 35 A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So the point by comparing those verses and putting all that together is that when he addresses the fathers as those who have come to know God, he is including within that their personal love for God, they have advanced in their relationship with God, as well as their love for other believers, impersonal love for all mankind, and of course along with personal love for God we have occupation with Christ, where Christ is the focal point that... Uh, of our walk, and he is the model for our Christian life because we are living as he lived. And that's what John says back in uh, verse verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So the mature believer is going to have mastered personal love for God, unconditional or impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ now just a reminder because some people don't understand what I mean by impersonal love impersonal doesn't mean that it's somehow cold and distant but it means that you don't have to know the person you don't have to have a personal relationship with that individual in order to love them people that are strangers people who uh, work in service industries that you run into people that, that cut you off on the freeway the people you don't know these are people you can still exhibit uh, love to. It's an impersonal love because you don't know them or have a relationship with them. So John is writing, first of all, to the fathers, and then second, he addresses the young men, and he says that they have overcome the wicked one. And we saw that that was a reference to Satan, and the fact that they had dealt with certain temptations that... Uh, Satan throws in our path as young believers, uh, including distraction to keep us from the Word, to uh, find other things in life to do other than show up at Bible class on Wednesday night or Sunday morning, that uh, they have passed those tests and reached spiritual adolescence. They have come to a point where they understand they have an eternal destiny in heaven. They are going to receive an inheritance. And right now is the training ground to prepare us So that we are going to be able to rule and reign with Jesus Christ when he comes in the kingdom. So they are addressed as those who have overcome the evil one. And specifically, they have become grace-oriented. They have become oriented to doctrine in their thinking. And we know that because in uh, verse 14, they are said to be strong and the word of God abides in them. So they have advanced spiritually to a stage of spiritual adolescence. The problem that they have is that the cosmic system still has a certain attraction for them, and if they don't deal with that, then they will be in serious trouble. So, third then, John comes to the children, verse 18. These Again, this is the Greek word paideia by Dion which refers to them in terms of spiritual infancy this is not the term of endearment and he says children it is the last hour so first of all John is going to warn them about the reality of false teachers now these are teachers that he will say went out from us and the us there we saw were the group of apostles in Jerusalem so this tells us that these are teachers who have credentials. They they claim that they went to the right seminary and that they're associated with the right people. They were ordained at uh, the right churches. They went out from us, but John says they weren't of us. And see, there are often teachers who appear to have fine credentials on the surface, and yet there are problems. There are both doctrinal problems and spiritual problems. And John is dealing with those who were once associated with them in Jerusalem, but they're no longer associated. They've separated themselves because there are doctrinal disagreements. Yet everywhere this group goes, they're going back and they're claiming that, remember, we were in Jerusalem, we were with the apostles, we know them, we, we know John, we've, we've eaten Sunday dinner with John and with Peter, and we have this relationship so you can trust us. You see, I've, I've noticed the same kind of thing happens today. And, and one thing I've noticed in doctrinal churches is that there are often those who uh, make a big issue out of their association with Baraka Church or with uh, Pastor Theme down in Houston. And uh, there are often those you run across, you get out on the Internet and you do a, do a search, and you will run across some, some of these doctrinal churches make a big deal about the fact that they were perhaps ordained down at Baraka or that they have that relationship. And it's really emphasized on their website. Then there are others, and it's hardly mentioned at all. The interesting thing that I've noticed is that the more somebody emphasizes their association with uh, Baraka Church down in Houston, usually uh, they're off somewhere. In fact, I know of two or three of these guys who no longer have any relationship with Pastor Theme or with Baracka Church. They're off the mark on some doctrine or there's some kind of basic ethical or moral problem. And yet you get on the website and the first thing you see is something about being ordained at Baracka Church or something like that. And they've gotten involved in all kinds of problems. And yet hundreds and hundreds of people apparently uh, are fooled by this because they don't have the spiritual perspicacity to recognize that these individuals have um, somehow divorced themselves from orthodox doctrine at some point or another, and they're usually emphasizing their own personality or building their own you know, little private denomination or association. And so this goes on year after year, century after century, just one, one of the um, trends in the church age, and this is why people have to learn how to think. You don't just learn to memorize doctrine. You don't just learn to uh, uh, be able to recite certain phrases and certain verbiage. You have to learn to think on your own and that's always difficult and that is what John emphasizes here for these young believers is that they have to learn how to think biblically and that they have been given the tools for that at the instant of salvation. And John as we saw in the last couple of uh, on the last couple of lessons John emphasizes this under the terminology of anointing so in verse 18 first of all he warned them about um, false teachers and the reality of false teachers that would use deceptive practices and emphasize their association with uh, with the apostles in order to uh, gain some level of credibility and then second he shows that uh, in verse 19, that fellowship is broken by false doctrine. Now, that's not something that's usually emphasized today. We're so, so uh, attuned to uh, respecting one another's religious beliefs that, uh, that we're afraid to uh, distance ourselves from somebody who's in false doctrine. I don't mean some, some disagreement over um, some interpretation of this verse or that verse. Uh, but I mean basic fundamental doctrine such as the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which is what John is dealing with here. These were false teachers who denied the true uh, 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 humanity of Jesus Christ and that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, as we will see as we get down to verse 22 this morning. So in verse uh, 19 he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. And it's important to understand that the us there does not refer to us Christians, but us apostles. Paul has, I mean, John has used that first person plural, the we and the us, since verse 1 of chapter 1, to refer to the group of apostles, and he includes himself in that group. So now, addressing the children, he is going to address them in terms of their basic, what we would call the basic problem-solving devices or spiritual skills. So let's review these with the chart up on the screen. In spiritual childhood, there are five spiritual skills that we have to Master, The first is confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. Because every time we sin, we're out of fellowship, we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, and His sanctifying ministry is squelched. So we have to begin to recover from that, and that's simply through admission or acknowledgement of sin to God the Father. That brings us the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we are told to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. That's the spiritual skill is to walk by means of the Spirit, and that's found in Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians 5.16. We learn to walk by means of the Spirit. Then we begin to operate on the faith rest grill. We learn certain promises and we learn certain principles of doctrine in the Scriptures, and we apply them. We mix our faith with those promises and those principles, and we begin gradually, slowly, to apply doctrine. As we do, we start understanding some basic doctrines, such as grace, and we learn that everything is dependent upon grace, and that's what we call grace orientation. We have to orient all of our thinking to grace. That means humility. Humility means that we have to be teachable. We have to submit to the authority of a pastor-teacher and a local congregation so that under the rigors of academic discipline, Uh, Being there every time the doors are open, we're going to learn the Word. We learn that it's not up to us. It's not based on who we are or what we've done, that God blesses us. It's due to His grace. So we learn grace orientation. That develops humility in us so that we can uh, face issues in life. It involves authority orientation, and we begin to develop a mastery over the details of life because we're oriented to God's grace and not the circumstances of life. And then the fifth is doctrinal orientation. 2 Peter 3.18 says that we grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So growth comes by being oriented to grace and oriented to the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's doctrinal orientation. Now, what we saw last time is that the reason we're able to learn and apply doctrine is based upon the fact that at the instant of salvation... We are regenerated, we receive the human spirit, and we are given the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that teaches us so that John's use of the term anointing refers to what happens at salvation. I emphasized the fact by going back into the Old Testament last time that that in the Old Testament, anointing only occurred once in somebody's life, it occurred at the beginning or inception of their ministry, it was a non repeatable instance and it indicated that they were set apart for a particular service and were given everything they needed to fulfill that particular function, whether it was prophet, priest, or king. The same is true for the believer. We are given everything at salvation, so that's related to the doctrine of positional truth. But the thing that John is honing in on and focusing on here is the fact that this becomes the basis for learning and applying doctrine. In spiritual adolescence, which I mentioned earlier, we develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We realize that we are uh, not just living for today, but we are living for eternity. And we make decisions no longer on the basis of what's going to happen tomorrow or how it's going to affect tomorrow, but we realize that sooner or later we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that rewards are going to be handed out, that our inheritance is at stake and our role in the eternal kingdom is uh, going to be affected by the decisions we make today, so we begin to think beyond tomorrow. That's our personal sense of our eternal destiny. And then for the spiritual adults, we have a develop a personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. This is what I call the, the, the love triplex. They work together and they develop together. As we learn to love God, we then learn to apply that in terms of our relationships with other people. And we're also learning to, to live and walk as Christ walked. The culmination of all of this is that we have perfect happiness. We share the happiness of Christ, um, inner happiness, and we're able to fulfill the mandate of James 1, 2 to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Now, that's a basic roadmap of the spiritual life. These are the spiritual skills. And this is how we develop them in different stages of the spiritual life. Now, by understanding that and having that as sort of a blueprint helps us to understand and organize what John is saying in these verses. Now, in verse 20, he says in the New American Standard, it starts off with a but. Now, I want you to notice that... uh, that is not a but in the original. In the original, we have the Greek word chi, which should be translated and rather than but. The Greek conjunction of contrast is either Allah and in some cases death. It is not chi. Kai is a coordinating conjunction. Now, the problem is that if you come at 1 John with the idea that John is talking about tests of faith, that is, drawing distinctions, how you can know whether or not you're saved or not, then you're going to be forced by that interpretive grid. You're going to want to translate this chi as a but. Because now you're going to draw a contrast between the false teachers who aren't saved, the antichrists who aren't saved, in verse 19, and these believers who are saved. They have an anointing. However, as I've emphasized again and again, First John is not written for tests of fellowship I mean tests of faith, but tests of fellowship. The contrast is between believers who are advancing spiritually and those who are not, those who are carnal, those who are out of fellowship. Those and they're out of fellowship because of false doctrine and because of sin in the life. So John says, and, he is it's an ascensive use of the conjunction chi, and he says, and even you have an anointing from the Holy One. In other words, they're not qualitatively any different from these false teachers. Remember, the false teachers went out from us. The indication is that they were saved. Then they got into heresy. And now they're promoting their heresy, the same as the Judaizers in, in, over in Galatians. The probability is that they were saved. And John is simply adding something to this, and he's going to make his next point. he says, and you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know. Now, I didn't catch this last week for two reasons. First of all, I had so much head congestion, I couldn't think straight last week and we were just fortunate we managed to squeak out Bible class anyway. And second, I do most of my work in a Greek text, and I use the majority text because I find that the print's a little larger and a little more easy for my old eyes to read. And so I didn't catch the difference until this week. I happened to look at the New American Standard and realize that there's a a textual problem here. And the New American Standard, NIV, most of your modern translations are going to translate this, uh, that you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all uh, know. That is, you all is taken as um, part of the subject of the clause. So what you have here is the second person, plural, you. Now, you don't have a second-person plural pronoun in the Greek. It's with the verb. It's a second-person plural of of, uh, oida, which indicates uh, embedded within the verb itself is the second-person plural of you. And then you have the Greek pas, and in some manuscripts it has this in a nominative case, which indicates subject. So this would then read, you, you all, because you have a second person plural here, y'all. And then there would be a second statement, all, no. And this would be for emphasis. I find that that would be a a, a bit cumbersome. Now, the interesting thing, and when I talk about a textual problem, for those of you that are um, a, a little confused on that, we have... Over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament available to us today. Now, back when your um, uh, your King James version was translated, that was based on a Greek text that was put together by Erasmus, and it's come to be called the Textus, the T R, or the Textus Receptus, the received text, and that was actually based on only on only 13 Greek manuscripts, the oldest of which came from the 9th century A.D., over 800 years after the writing of the uh, original scriptures. Well, since since then, since 1611, 1610, we have um, found thousands and thousands of Greek manuscripts. Now, the problem is that whenever a scribe is copying a manuscript... Uh, they're going to make mistakes. Their, their eyes are going to skip from one line to another, especially if there's a, uh, you have a, one verb on one line and you have that same verb on the next line. It's easy when you're copying for your eye to skip. It's also, in some cases, uh, in the scriptoriums of the monasteries, they would have one monk who would stand up like this. You would have your various desks out in front, and he would read or dictate from his original manuscript, and everybody is just writing down what he says. And they didn't have Xerox machines, so that's how they copied the text. And they would make copious errors. So, you know, in our 5,000 manuscripts, there's all kinds of of small errors or minor errors. And most of these, the vast majority, have to do with uh, minor things like punctuation, uh, spelling, In some cases, words are left out or or words are added. But in in a few cases, they are significant. And you know me, over the years, I've rarely ever mentioned something like this. But in this particular case, I thought it was worth worth, um, emphasizing. First of all, you have this this phrase, you all or y'all all know. And that takes the Greek, the Greek word pos, P A S, as part of the subject. It's in a nominative case, and that would make it part of the subject. And that's found in an, about ten ancient manuscripts, the most significant of which is Codex Sinaiticus. It's indicated usually with a an Aleph or abbreviation. And that has a fascinating story behind it that I don't have time to tell now, but it was discovered uh, by Count Tischendorf on Mount Sinai at the uh, St. Catherine's Monastery. And the monks there were wadding up pages from this and using it to uh, light their fires in the, in the winter. And he discovered this in the 19th century. They didn't read Greek, but he did. And it was almost a complete codex of the um, New Testament, and it dates from the 4th century uh, B.C. The second is Codex uh, B, uh, called Vaticanus, because it was locked away in the vaults of the Vatican for centuries until Tischendorf once again, or no, it wasn't Tischendorf, um, there was another textual critic of the 19th century, came and virtually memorized it and published uh, he had a photographic memory, and he came in day after day. They gave him five minutes to look at it. He could not uh, write anything down. He could not take notes, and he would just go through and memorize it and go back to his room and write down what he had memorized. And because he published an almost perfect uh, uh, representation uh, or facsimile of Vaticanus, uh, the, the Vatican was forced to publish it. That manuscript also dates from the 4th century A.D., and is Many scholars think it's a little bit earlier than, than, uh, than uh, Sinaiticus, and Sinaiticus was probably based on, on Codex B. Now, one theory in textual criticism, I'm going to simplify this for everybody, is that older is better. Well, if it's a manuscript from the 4th century, then gosh, that must be more accurate than a manuscript from the 9th century, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? Sounds like common sense. But what if the 9th century manuscript is a perfect copy of a 2nd century manuscript? Ah, then the, the newer copy is really better than the older copy. Oh, now we have a problem. See, this is a whole science of textual criticism, and we're not going to get distracted by that. Uh, but there's a lot of different principles that you use in order to evaluate these, these different readings. And the um, second area of support has the statement in the text, not you all, all know, but you know all things. And the all things, again, is the Greek word uh, pas, but this time it is in the accusative case. It's the object of the verb know. And this is found in a number of, in fact, it's found in the majority of manuscripts, And it is found especially in in, um, Codex uh, A, which is Alexandrinus, which is also down in Egypt near Sinai. And that dates from the uh, 5th century, as well as Codex C, which is called Ephraim. And that too dates from the 5th century. Now, the older is better crowd think that if of these four manuscripts, if any if any two or three of them agree, or if any three of them agree, then that must be the original reading. Well, here they're split. You have two on one side and two on the other. And the reading that I prefer, that you know all things, is also found in what's called the Byzantine uh, collection, which is a vast majority of manuscripts that we have. Well, you don't just pick something because you like it. You pick it because it has there's a certain amount of evidence that supports it. And there are internal problems with the idea of um, that you find in your NASB and NIV with the translation you all know. Uh, First of all, I think it's a cumbersome translation. It's not just emphatic, but also because it doesn't it doesn't fit with the context. Remember, as I have said again and again and again, in First John, we have John's commentary on what Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse. So it's not just a matter when you make these decisions of just looking at what's right there in front of you or coming up with some sort of maybe simple explanation, but looking at the overall context of theology. And what John writes here is, is, is an and you have an anointing. Now, now, you see, part of the problem here is that if you're assuming that this is a contrast, now I know this is getting a little much, for, a little heavy in the morning. If you're assuming that there's a contrast between the false teachers and these believers who have an anointing and they don't, then you would be saying, but you all know, as opposed to the Antichrist, the false teachers, don't know. However, it's not a contrasted chi. It is a, it is a coordinating chi. And what John is saying is, in addition to, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. So to take it as you all know is an, is an interpretive decision that fits with a view of First John, that is going to ultimately end up in lordship salvation. You see, it all ties together. Theology is a seamless whole, and, and there have to be certain certain connections made like that. But the most important thing is that in passages like John 14:26, we have this same kind of construction with a neuter, I mean a plural accusative of pos. There, John said, uh, Jesus says, in the Upper Room Discourse, remember, which is the background for understanding 1 John, but the, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And that's your all things. That's your neuter, plural, of pot. So, you know all things because He teaches you all things. You've received the Holy Spirit. And the context is, by receiving the Holy Spirit, which we get at the point of salvation... What John calls anointing, you get something related to teaching. And see, skip down with me to verse 27. Verse 27, John summarizes this, and he says, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you. So the anointing of the Holy Spirit is what teaches us, but what does it teach us? John 14, 26, it teaches us all things. So you have to have... Not merely an understanding of maybe some dynamics that are going on in First John chapter two, but an overall appreciation of the correct interpretation of the Upper Room discourse in conjunction with the uh, uh, interpretive framework of First John. See, this is what I have to do every week. This is why you go to seminary; is so that you can get into it. Because you know the translations. I don't want to burst your bubble. You can learn a lot by reading your translations. But the guys who do translations have, have theological biases. Everybody does. I do. Everybody does. But when you translate, you need to be careful not to let those things through. Now, I've had one question here. Some of you, I know, get out on the Internet. And there's a, uh, a group called, uh, or a website called Bible.org. And they, that's been developed by a lot of guys out of Dallas Seminary. And some of these guys have been working. Some of them are professors at Dallas. And they've developed a new translation called the New English Translation, the NET Bible. And um, I got a copy. Of this It just came out. And I don't know if you've run across it yet, but but it, it, don't just ignore it. And when I first got it, I thought, boy, this is really something that's that's kind of neat. And a lot of guys I knew were really uh, were really excited about about this. So I got a copy, and I started going through it, and I realized. All kinds of things, for example, the, and, I, and then when I was in Kiev, I got it right before I went to Russia. Then when I was in Kiev, I emailed the guy and I said, I want to know who the translators are here. When I got the list of translators, I, I felt like I'd been sucker punched. The older guys, there were only about 18 translators. The older guys on it, who were guys who were faculty members of Dallas when I were there, were the same lovely crowd that gave us a, I won't say that, gave us the NIV, which is a horrid translation. And the younger guys were guys I went through seminary with who, in my opinion, never had a tremendous uh, uh, affection or attraction for the the historical traditional positions of Dallas Seminary, Lewisburg, Schaefer, and the doctrines which we all hold dear. And in my opinion, these guys have been out to change everything, and they have, and they've destroyed Dallas Seminary. And they've introduced such things like progressive dispensationalism, dispensationalism and they've gotten away from the grace positions on salvation and back to lordship salvation. For example, uh, in uh, Galatians 2:16, which talks about the fact that nevertheless you have been justified, you have not been justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. That's standard translation, King James Version, uh, New American Standard uh, translates it that way, faith in Christ. But they've decided that it's, it's a genitive construction in the Greek. And they've decided it should be taken as a subjective genitive instead of an objective genitive. And an objective genitive makes it faith in the noun that's the that, that, that's in the genitive, faith in Christ. Well, when you make it subjective, you translate it by the faithfulness of Christ. So we're saved by the faithfulness of Christ. That changes the whole meaning of the verse. Then in Isaiah chapter 14 in that Bible, they uh, th- th- their study note says that that's not the fall of Satan. That has nothing to do with the fall of Satan. And there are a number of other places where there are, are uh, changing translations. So I called up Tommy and said, hey, have you looked at this thing? And so we talked about many of the problems that we had run into, and we decided that, that what a better way to really change the theology of a tradition than to go in and come out with your own translation that changes the meaning of key verses in key places. So... Um, uh, you have to be careful with your translations. The guys who translated any translation do have a theological framework and they make decisions on the basis of that. So we have to be very careful, especially in, in, in books like First John. So that should be translated. First John 2, uh, 20 should be translated, but or excuse me, and you have an anointing, from the Holy One, that is the Holy Spirit, because Jesus Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit and we are in Him, so we share the same anointing. And you know all things. And this has to do with the potential of knowledge that we all have because we possess the Holy Spirit. For example, John 16:13 states, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. And then we come to verse 21. John says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. In other words, and he uses the word oida here. It's not gnosko coming to know the truth, but oida, which em- emphasizes an absolute knowledge of the truth. They've been taught. He's been with them. They know the truth. He says, I'm not writing this because you don't know the truth. I was there. I know exactly what you've been taught. I'm writing you because you do know it, and I'm making, he's making a point of contrast. He's going to contrast the lie of the false teachers with the truth of what the apostles have, have taught. Come to verse 22. He's going to define what uh, the lie is. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So at stake here is a denial that Jesus is the Messiah, and for John, that's the core of the gospel. In 1 John 5, one, he says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. That's the basis for regeneration. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And then in John twenty thirty and 31, John wrote, "...many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ." That is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the one who was foretold in the Old Testament. "...and that believing you may have life in his name." For John, denial of Jesus as, as Messiah is equivalent to re, also rejecting God as the Father the two are inseparable. And that's why he can go on to say in verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So he is emphasizing the unity of Father and Son. Now this, Jesus made the claim not merely to deity, but to being one with God the Father. An essential unity. John 10.30, he said, I and the Father are one. The Jews understood he was making a claim to deity, and they picked up stones to stone him. But furthermore, he went on to say in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You see, what Jesus does, the Father does. What the Father does, Jesus does. They're separate personalities, but they are the same in essence. This is the core of the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one in essence and three in person. So the basic claim that John is making is related to salvation, that rejection of the unity of Father and Son is really implicit in the gospel. When you accept Christ as Savior, John is saying, that's the same as accepting the truth about God the Father. You may not have a full understanding of theology proper or the Trinity, but implicitly that's what you are doing. If you reject God the Father, you're going to reject Jesus also because... They're, they're the same. They, they are one in essence. So to reject one is to reject the other. To accept one is to accept the other. Other passages that emphasize this are found in John twelve forty four and 45. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. It's not just belief in Christ, but there is a belief in the fact that if he is the Son of God then there is some definition to the concept of God. Verse 45, he says, "...and he who beholds me, beholds the one who sent me." That's the same thing he says over in John 14.10. He says, do, not, "...do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves." And in the same context, he told Peter, i excuse me," he told Philip, "If you have seen me, you have seen the Father." Now, if we look at verse twenty-three, or verse twenty-four, it says, um, "Verse twenty-three: Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father." Now, some of you may look at that and say, "Well, doesn't that mean that they, they, they're not saved because they don't have the Father?" And we have to be careful because of what the Greek says. The Greek verb here is the verb "echo." Which means to, to have or to hold. Now it can mean possess, as it does in John five twelve through thirteen, but it can also mean to have at one's disposal, in John four eleven and John five seven. And also, First John two one. It can also be used to have or experience fellowship, as in First John uh, one three and seven. So we have to make sure we understand the sense of have here. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father doesn't necessarily mean doesn't have the Father in terms of salvation, but it can mean that the person who denies the Son does not have an ongoing beneficial relationship or fellowship with the Father. But the one who confesses the Son has the Father. And that makes sense because back when we studied 1 John 1, 1 through 4, John is saying, related to the false teachers, they don't have fellowship with us apostles or with God because they've rejected the deity of Christ. So the issue is that if you, don't have fellow, if you have false doctrine, you're going to not be in fellowship with God or with other, other believers. So what John is saying in verse 23 is whoever denies the Son does not have an ongoing beneficial relationship with the Father, what we call having or enjoying fellowship. But the one who admits that the Son uh, is the Messiah, in context that's what that would mean, Uh, has the Father also is in fellowship with the Father in a beneficial relationship. Now, we'll have to come back next time to finish up the chapter in verses 24 through 27 because we are out of time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to realize again the importance of our relationship with you in advancing spiritually. We pray for anyone here this morning who is perhaps not a believer, perhaps not saved, Unsure and uncertain about their eternal destiny. Right now, you can make that sure and certain, right? Where you sit in the privacy of your priesthood, all you need to do, in the privacy of your soul, all you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of ritual. It's just a matter of what you believe. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. And the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? That's the issue. Faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray for others in the congregation, those who are children, those who are young men, those who are fathers, that they might continue to make doctrine a priority in their life. And for some here who need to make that decision, about making doctrine a priority in their lives so that they can advance and grow to spiritual adulthood. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.